Welcome to another installment of Black Steel in the Hour of Chaos. I'm your host, Kenji McClooney. I am a social work intern, grad student at the illustrious, the bountiful, the beautiful, magnanimous Appalachia State University. Today, I would like to follow up on my podcast and talk about the COVID-19, the coronavirus. Uh, Today, I'll be touching on uh, two podcasts. Well, wait a minute. Let me rephrase that. Two TED Talks. And I will finish with grief and loss. Because... From what I'm reading and what I'm gathering, there's going to be some loss. And I'd just like to talk a little bit about it. Also, it kind of relates to my personal life. So, let's just get started. I watched a TED Talks for the fourth time today because this is my third time recording. On uh, Bill Gates, he did a TED Talks four years ago with 21 million Views talking about the next outbreak. We're not ready. He goes and used the model of the Ebola and how it affected West Africa. It ended up killing 10,194 people as of March 2015 in 428 days. Uh, Relatively... uh, poor area of Africa. Not all of Africa is poor. But they could have done better with that and they could have shrunken that number if they had the proper training, the proper people there, and worked faster, more preventive than uh, reactive. He then uses the model that of uh, how America is not prepared for a catastrophe or a epidemic that was uh, a, a health scare, but we spend millions and trillions of dollars on weaponry for war. It talks about how the military is prepared for just about any type of warfare that will come their way. They have trained soldiers ready to go right now, have reserves ready to amp up if need be. Then they have uh, proper research in the area they'll be working out of with the technology at our fingertips. They've had uh, simulations ran through NATO that uh, could also help prepare them for any up-to-date warfare training or simulations on what if this happens just to keep the soldiers on their toes. We don't have that when it comes to health care. He uses the, uh, the Spanish flu 
took place in 1918 and how uh, 33,365,533 people died in 263 days. He suggests that we might need to start working in the <coughs> working in the poorer countries to build a stronger health care system with trained professionals uh pair them with the military since they're so good at getting from A to B so quickly and instead of running war gang simulations, run germ gang uh situations. Last time something like this was raining was in 2001, and it went horribly wrong. So, already we going into this situation trying to catch up. We realized where we were weak at, but we apparently didn't make any strides into being stronger since 2001. He also had a uh, he had a Q and A recently on Reddit, and when <clears throat> I checked this out on his own website called Gate Notes, thirty one questions and answers about COVID nineteen. Now I'm not gonna read thirty one questions or answers about COVID nineteen, but I will read some of the quick questions, things that I think. Are interesting. Reddit question says, "What are the current crisis? Excuse me. What about the current crisis worries you the most, and what gives you the most hope?" And he says, "Current phase. Oh, for the record, this. Before I even go further, I apologize. This uh, Q and A." took place March 19, 2020. So this was earlier last month, probably mid last month. Moving back, uh, he's talking about current crisis, what worries you the most. He says the current phase has a lot of cases in rich countries. The right, an- the right action included the testing and social distancing, which he calls shutdown. Within two to three months, the rich countries should have avoided high levels of infection. That's good for the rich uh, countries. Well, what about the developing countries? And that goes into his worry that uh, developing countries may not have the resources needed uh, to do social distancing the same way as rich countries, let alone the hospital capacity. So uh, that's not good. Going down is, uh, is there a chance for 18-month timeline for development of a vaccine that can be shortened or, and if so, by how much? This is a great question. There's six different efforts going in to make a vaccine. Some use an approach called the RNA, which is unproven. We'll like to have build lots of manufacturing for different approaches, knowing that some of them will work. Some of them not work. They literally need billions of vaccines to protect the world. 
and be sure the vaccine vaccines required testing to make sure they're safe and effective because some vaccines like the flu don't work for the elderly. Um and this did, all this could happen before the first eighteen months. The first vaccines will be given out to the critical workers and the healthcare workers. <coughs> if everything goes well. And then he goes in to talk about Dr. F- Fossey. And we'll talk a little bit more about that a little bit later. But, you know, the work they're doing is going at full speed. As an educator, what is something I can do for my students, especially for my low-income students who don't have access to technology during this time? I have tried to send reassuring emails, including cat pictures, but I worry about the educational impact as well as the long-term impact to my students' well-being. Before I go further, I'd like to give a shout-out to Ms. Kristen Harmon, who was my instructor in my internship uh, and personal development class. Um... She's really uh, reached out to us and understand that uh, we're on the precipice of graduating at the crest of our education. Well, for some of us, somebody's going to, in my cohort, I'm sure, is going to go for the doctorate. It won't be me. But um, they're doing the best they can with the resources they have at their fingertips. But what what I like about it most is they continue to put the social back in social work. And with them reaching out the way they have and being available through email or uh, Zoom. And even having an optional class, if you just need to come in and vent, that's what it's there for. And I greatly appreciate it and will be using it because... Social workers have a certain type of brain, and it's hard to find people that, let alone understand us, but think like us. And for me to be able to connect with the rest of my cohort in this place where we're quarantined, uh, it's kind of important just to be heard and to be understood to some degree. Well, back to... What they're saying, it is a huge problem that schools will likely be shut down for the next months. And he is impressed with the creativity that's being shown by many teachers as they try to teach remotely. And he dropped some good uh, online resources. Khan Academy, Common Lit, Illustrative Mathematics, Zern. And Scholastic are some of these online resources that have uh, apparently some type of academic value. Comcast and other uh, internet providers are running special programs to help with access. But unfortunately, low-income students will be hurt more by the situation than others. So we need to help any way we can. Um, There was one more question I was going to read. Here we go. For those of you who have disparaging thoughts about our government, 
And this this is what I say to you. This question says, why do you think most world governments weren't prepared if you and other experts warn of such events such as this? Before I even go further, when I think of Bill Gates, I'm not thinking healthcare. I'm not thinking a pandemic dealing with viruses, unless it's a computer virus. But I do realize that Bill Gates is thought of as one of the smartest people in the world. So I might would have at least listened to him if I didn't listen to the experts. <clears throat> he replies, no one could predict what the chance of a new virus emerging was. However, we did know it would happen at some point, either with the flu or some respiratory virus. There was almost no funding. The creation of the CEP, the CEPI, which was funded by our foundation, Welcome, W-E-L-L-C-O-M-E, Norway, Japan, Germany, and the UK was a step, but a tiny step compared to what should have happened. We prepare for possible wars and fires, and now we have to have preparation for epidemic treat treated epidemics treated with the same seriousness. The good news is that our biological tools, including new ways to make diagnostic therapeutics and vaccines make it possible to have a strong response system for naturally caused epidemics. Now, the CEPI stands for, if you give me one second, it stands for the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovation. Last question, and this is someone who uh, did a little bit of um, research and uses words like flattening the curve. I read the Imperial College COVID-19 response team report as well as this explanation in the historical context. Essentially, it says that by doing nothing, 4 million Americans die. Through the mitigation strategy, i.e. social distancing and flattening the curve, it says that 1.1 to 2 million Americans will die. However, it also says that the suppression strategy, or shutting everything down for 18 months, will lead only to a few thousand people dying. Do you agree with these numbers? And if so, is there any excuse for not immediately issuing a shelter-in-place order for the entire country? Fortunately, Bill Gates responds, fortunately, it appears that the parameters used in the model were too negative. The experience in China is the most critical data we have. We did their shutdown and we were able to reduce the number of cases. They are testing widely, so they see rebounds immediately. And so far, there have not been a lot. They avoided a widespread infection. The Imperial model does not match this experience. Models are only as good as the assumptions put into them. People are working on models that match what we see, what we are seeing more closely, and they will become a key tool. A group called the Institute for Disease Modeling that I fund is one of the groups working with this and others. Wow. I, this last one, I apologize. I just it just ran, ran across this a little lengthy, but it goes into uh, 
a hierarchy that sometimes Americans feel to take place. COVID-19 testing standards seem grossly unfair in favor of the rich and famous. Testing is happening for people like professional sports players, even those without any symptoms at all. I'm not talking about healthcare workers or people in essential jobs. I'm talking about actors, actresses, sports players, and so on. On the flip side, the guidance of from Kaiser in Washington is that you have you must have a fever of 101.5, either a serious shortness of breath or a bad cough, and even when testing results take five days or more. How is it even something like COVID-19 testing, which the government is supposed to manage, the rich and famous are getting special treatment? Is there a, is there a stash of tests that are reserved for people that matter? Isn't it hypo, hypocritical for everyone else to be told they need to look out for common good and avoid demanding too much of the healthcare system. Meanwhile, the rich and famous get whatever they want when they want it. It says we need to democratize and scale the testing system by having a COD website that people go to and enter their situation. This is a response by Gates. Priority situations should get tested within 24 hours. This is a very possible since countries have done it. Healthcare workers, for example, should have priority. Elderly people should have priority. We will be able to catch up the testing demand within a few weeks of getting the system in place. Without the system, we don't know what is missing. Swabs, reagents, etc. Now, I watched another uh, TED Talks from Alana Shakaya, which from now on I'll be referring to her as Alana because I know I'm butchering her last name, and she does not deserve that. <coughs> she talks about, <coughs> excuse me, I do not feel that I have the coronavirus. <laughs> um, she talks about uh, how important it is to get good information from good people, and when she means good people, she's talking about people who are qualified to give uh, feasible uh Answers, and not just somebody on Facebook. Uh, So she lists her credentials. She has 20 years in global health, specializing in in in-house systems. She also did uh, work in global health journalism and has a book that she went out and got uh, published. On such, she's been on the front lines of the epidemical efforts dealing with Ebola um, and she was with the, uh, excuse me, bird flu preparedness team, what she calls, uh, avian influenza, but I don't know what bird flu means. Uh, she has a master's in international health. So if you was to take all her experience and what she does know how to do, one being a random person on Facebook, 10 being, you know, the World Health Organization, she rates herself at a modest seven. So there you have that. In her uh, TED Talk, she talks about uh, there being six kinds of coronavirus. And coronavirus runs off of NA instead of DNA. RNA, excuse me, instead of DNA. Uh, I'll let you guys look up what RNA means. Um, 
it uh, she described the sales of this virus as uh sale with spikes all over it. So like a stress ball of some sort. Good coffee for the working man. Um these spikes are used to cling to the sides of the lungs and also to penetrate other cells where they can infect them. She also says that uh like like I mentioned earlier, there's six kinds of coronaviruses and that this coronavirus is not new. That's possibly why you're seeing the coronavirus uh placed on the side of Lysol cans as a, a way to get rid of it or destroy it. Uh but they weren't called coronaviruses. They were given names like SARS and MERS. Uh both of them being respiratory infectious diseases or viruses. Up until December there was only six, but now this new coronavirus makes it number seven and a novelty because they've never seen anything like this before. Now, um, what makes this so dangerous is that you can have, you can go 24 days without showing symptoms <coughs> and work fine, healthy, and not even know that you are infected. Children seem to be great from what she told me in her uh, TED Talks with the coronavirus. It travels, uh, it's a zoonotic uh, disease, which means it uh, goes from animal to person. Now, the coronavirus goes person to person, so therefore it travels twice as fast. But most of the time, these coronaviruses are hard to stop because they have animal reserves, which has something to do with the RNA, I believe. Now, with the bird flu and Ebola, uh, since they're, uh, I want to say swine flu, but don't quote me on that. Um, well, for sure, the uh, uh, bird flu comes from wild birds so once you get a herd well a flock of birds rather because birds aren't herds i wrapped um they are uh they can all have that virus you can cure that virus and that whole area that might have been infected can be settled down and get rid of the avian flu the problem is despite you eradicating it uh, 2019, guess what? It's coming back because there'll be a new flock of birds come in. Uh, she feels that when we invade different areas like the rainforest and other unknown areas that haven't had human exposure there and we destroy the land, we're having these new wild animals who may be infected and we don't know get in contact with humans. So, uh, pushing animals out of their land will have them come in our area, and we could possibly be exposed that way. And bats do play a pivotal part in hosting a lot of illnesses that uh, affects people. But once again, she's not saying that these bats are where it came from. She also tells me that 
Quarantine does not stop infection. It might stop the spread of infection, but quarantine is not uh, the cure. Like, like I said, it that goes back to flattening the curve. She talks about how when people hear the word quarantine or are forced to do something out of the ordinary or restrictions that people have, they tend to do the exact opposite. Now, not everybody, but there'll be a few uh, individuals, a small percentage of people that will do the exact opposite. And from a a social work perspective, I can easily see that happening because sometimes it will be when you have the restrictions of you can't do this, there will always be somebody that's willing to push the envelope. Always somebody want to test the boundaries and go beyond that just to see if they could get away with it or is it uh, really going to affect them. I mean, just like a kid, you'll tell a kid, don't do this. And they'll hear you and understand, but they just want to see what will happen if they did do this. You told me I'd get hurt, but let me see if I touch the stove because I believe I can do it and not get hurt. And there'll be some people who had no idea or even thought of to come out the house or to go traveling. But because you said they couldn't travel, all of a sudden they want to travel because I feel people like options. And when they're not given proper uh, options, they tend to make bad decisions based off the fact they don't have the proper information. And this goes back to why people don't trust the government. Because they feel like the government started this. It's a man-made virus and it just got out of control. But that's not what we're here to talk about. But that is something that I'm sure that you all know that is out there. And if you didn't know that, you're welcome. If you know, you know. Now, I said I would like to talk about grief. And there's five stages of grief. I used to teach a class at one of my jobs uh, in grief counseling. And after a course, I've gotten the rapport with the people. We start talking about the five stages of grief. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And despite that a lot of the people had gotten to acceptance, that's doesn't necessarily mean they're healed. Lots of times people get that last stage mixed up. Uh, As acceptance means, you know, uh, I'm healed now. No, that means it can start the real healing. But it's at that point that people may really need people around them. Because that acceptance can easily revert back to depression. I know because I've been there. Um, the first stage, of course, is denial. And when I mean grief or loss, I'm not just talking about death. I'm talking about loss of opportunity, loss of relationship, loss of a job, a car, a home, uh, a school. There have been plenty of times I was in grief because of what was taking place in school. 
So don't just automatically align grief with death because it's not always set up that way. Second stage of grief is anger. Um, people get angry at themselves, feeling like if I would have done this or done that, maybe that would have changed something. Or I wish I would have been able to say this to them or they left me on purpose. When they start playing the blame game, being upset with other people that they feel like if they would have done this, would have done that, none of this would have happened. Bargaining is the third stage of grief where they're looking to see if they could have uh, made a deal with some uh, higher being or promised to do something if the pain would just go away. Depression. Depression is something that may take some time to develop. True depression or being clinically depressed is uh, not necessarily uh, coming. You don't automatically go from bargaining to clinical depression. It takes time to be even considered clinically depressed. Um... We often think we are depressed when grief first hit, but most of the time that's just a shock and the emotions are present and you're having to try to sort things out. And depression is the first thing people want to holler and put on you without actually allowing you to process the feelings that you have in the first place. And I feel like sometimes when you're around a bunch of people or negative people who uh, have an idea about you, they can talk you into feeling a certain way that you might not necessarily feel. How many times have you been at church or around loved ones and someone said, are you okay? And you're like, yeah, you look sick. Okay, but I don't, I'm not sick. Well, what's wrong? Something's wrong. You're just like, well, there's nothing wrong. But they keep badgering you and you're starting to think... Am I sick? I don't feel sick. But you start questioning your own self. When the right people with the right frequency of times them coming to you saying these things. They'll end up talking you into being something that you're not. Acceptance. This is where... The experience of grief is no longer looking backwards and trying to recover uh, what happened or the situation. But they try to move forward with their life. But sometimes moving forward does not mean those emotions aren't still there. But it does mean that you're not allowing them to, allowing them to have a front seat in your life. There's this lady at the uh, CCRM, Cleveland County Rescue Mission. She had recently lost, well, she had lost her husband. We'll say recent. And um, she still has his clothes, his shoes, his pipe, 
all in the same place that it was when he passed. And she tells me she just she's having a hard time just moving forward. <clears throat> and I said, well, first, you're doing a good uh, job by preoccupying your mind. <clears throat> you're not soaking in the situation. But by having his clothes and all his other items that remind you of him there, um, it may not be healthy. And it might be time for you to uh, maybe move that stuff. Not necessarily get rid of it, just move it out of sight. Maybe an out of sight, out of mind situation. Now, I'm not telling you you're going to forget about them because, you know, no one's telling you that you need to forget about the memories you shared or the trips you took, the laughs that you guys had. I'm not telling you that. What I am telling you is that when you have the opportunity to grieve, sometimes it's best that you let the things that remind you go. Does he have any family? Yes, his he has a mom and his brothers. Don't you think they would like to have some of that stuff? Well, they've offered to come by and pick some stuff up, but I'm not ready to let it go, and I understand that. But by you holding on to it, do you feel like you're uh, stopping them from healing? You think it's right or okay for you to try to heal and not allow them to heal? Just an idea. Maybe you should allow them to come by and pick up some stuff to help them just deal with what they're dealing with. Help them process their loss. And it just might do you a bit of good to do some good for them. When I talk about grief in my classes, we had a couple of interventions that we would do. We we also done empty chair where there's an empty chair and someone would come up in front of the class if they would like, or sometimes we'd do a private intervention and they'll uh, sit in their chair, look at the empty chair, and uh, they just go off and tell that person how they feel. There's a lot of questions on why did you leave me? Why didn't you prepare me? Now, I do... Well, let me try to explain this. The people that I work with did have technically a mental illness, per se. But that's what it was on paper. Most of them were, might have been IDD, but, you know. These are the ethics that you might run into. People will allow IDD people to be involved in mental health situations with mental health diagnosis that really don't have mental health diagnosis, but we need the numbers in the program so we can get paid and we can bill. So it all depends on how the therapist labels that person. But that's neither here nor there. But I just want to give you an idea of the type of population I will be working with. We've done empty chair. We've written letters to people to tell them how we feel, for those who would like to write. Um, we've also uh, had them draw pictures of uh, an event that really made them happy with that person and then draw a picture, if they wanted to, of a time that wasn't so great. 
by how quickly they write or draw these pictures lets me know what I need to focus on. The darker the stroke means that most emotion is being placed in that. And I attach myself to that emotion as I work with them, sometimes one-on-one, giving them a little bit of homework. We've had funerals and tombstones on uh, situations or feelings that we had. And we would uh, put them on paper, uh, make little caskets, and place them in the casket. And we lowered them in the ground and buried them. There was a time that uh, we set them on fire. I say all these things to say this. The one thing that it seems like What's going on? And though it's going to sound really bad, but it brings me back sort of to nine eleven, when we felt like we were having to go to war against people that weren't here. It brought us closer together. That's the one thing nine eleven did. I feel like it. It brought a sense of pride and unity amongst people in the community. And we really watched out for each other. Now this COVID-19. We're coming together mentally. But physically of course we can't come together. But it seems like we're all getting like like minded. So that's kind of good. Because you can't spell community without unity. So I find it very important that we not lose our humanity in all of this. We as social workers continue to put the social in social work. And we uh, we continue to look out for each other. Well, that's my time. I'd like to thank you for taking time out and listening. I hope you got something from this. I did. Uh, next episode, as of right now, I don't have an actual topic, but I'll talk a little bit more about COVID-19. Update on mental health in the black community that I see from my point of view. And a couple more interventions that I've ran into that I would like to have ran at the CCRM. Thank you for your time and your attention. This has been Black Steel in the Hour of Chaos.